Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, the programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us who live with pain. This edition has been enabled by an educational grant from Pfizer Limited. Before I was diagnosed, the pain is so bad that you automatically think you've got something in your head, a growth in your head or whatever, and everything flashes through your mind. Nothing can hurt that much. It cannot be normal that you can have that much pain and you're going to live. And Phil would pace up and down and be out in the garden at 3, 4 in the morning and he'd be really irritable, so I'd sort of stay away from him. I didn't know whether to help him or to stay back. The International Association for the Study of Pain designated 2012 as Global Year Against Headache. Headaches being among the most frequent of medical complaints seen in general practice and they take on many forms from tension type headaches, migraine to rarer conditions such as trigeminal neuralgia, all of which we featured on airing pain. Later in the programme I'll be talking to a husband and wife on how they manage as a couple to live with husband Phil's debilitating cluster headaches. But I want to start with Dr Barry Cecil. He's a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto in Canada and he specialises in orofacial pain, that is pain of the face and mouth. Some of the most common pain conditions in the body, whether they're acute or chronic, occur in this region and uh, particularly for the chronic pain conditions in the or a facial region, the face, the jaws, the mouth. Like many chronic pains elsewhere in the body, uh, we don't know uh, very much about their etiology, what their cause is, and uh, how they progress. And so that uh, makes diagnosis, and especially management, problematic when you don't know exactly what are the underlying mechanisms. And so uh, I spent the last 40, 45 years trying to work out these, these mechanisms, particularly using uh, animal models of acute and chronic orofacial pain. What are the other problems with facial pain? One of the most common, other than toothache, which is probably one of the most common pains in the body, there's also headaches, of course, different types of headaches, and some of them can actually get expressed or be spread to or referred to parts of the mouth or parts of the jaw. And uh, also another very common condition is called temporomandibular disorders, where there's pain in and around the jaw joints or in the associated muscles. And basically uh, 5 10% of the population have uh, temporomandibular disorders. And there's a female predominance. There's in fact a female predominance in most chronic pain conditions. Not all, but most. And so clearly uh, gender plays a a factor in a number of these chronic pain conditions in the orofacial area as well as uh, elsewhere in the body. Do you know why that is? There's genetic factors involved in in the manifestation of the pain and part of that is related to sex differences. Some of our own research has shown that uh, firstly in animal models the responsiveness of the nerve fibers supplying parts of the face and mouth and jaws and joint, jaw joint, there's a sex difference in how they respond. So in animals, uh, for example, you give uh, a chemical agent to activate these uh, nerve endings in the joint or muscle, jaw muscle, and uh, with this particular chemical activation, the uh, female rats, for example, those afferent fibers, sensory fibers in female rats, much more responsive than uh, those in male rats. And likewise, if you inject this chemical into awake humans, into their jaw muscle, for example. Again, young women are much more sensitive 
give much higher pain ratings, much more spread of the pain that they indicate compared with uh, young men. This is important because it means that there's physiologically based sex differences in these peripheral pain mechanisms. Not even talking about the brain and possible differences in how males and females may differ in their neurochemistry, neurocircuitry related to pain in, within their brain, but even in the, just the sensory nerve fibers outside the, the brain, there's these uh, physiologically based sex differences. Put simply, does that mean that women hurt more? Yes, it has actually been documented in women, humans, and again I'm generalizing, it varies, can vary from one country to another or from different racial and cultural groups, that uh, females, for example, have lower pain thresholds, they have greater pain sensitivity at threshold, but they also have lower pain tolerance. They can tolerate pain. There are these tests one can carry out in a controlled environment to measure pain threshold or pain tolerance or ratings of pain between those two extremes. And it's very clear that in a number of these racial, cultural groups that there are these sex differences. And, of course, one of the questions is, well, is that psychologically based? Is it physiologically based? And is it centrally based? In other words, is it within the brain that's uh, causing this or related to this sex difference? Or is it the nerve fibers themselves? As I said, we've established that it seems that at least the peripheral nerve fibers, there's some differences in how they respond to some painful stimuli. doesn't mean that that's how they respond to all painful stimuli. It just happens to be the ones that we were testing. But also you have to take into account that there could also be differences within the brain. There are differences between males and females in the neural circuits in the brain and the neurochemicals that are used in those circuits. So taking that back to facial pain then, dentists and clinicians should be aware that men and women are feeling different pain. That they could be, yes, they could be, yeah. It's important to establish that there are these physiologically based differences because many times in the past, and maybe still happening in some isolated cases, that... uh, women complaining of orofacial pain or pain elsewhere in the body have been sort of sloughed off by the clinician and saying this is just a female thing, it's just being, they're just exaggerating, being you know, too emotional about it and so on. And they've attributed it to that and really haven't managed the pain properly. They're just sloughing it off as a female thing that will eventually work out. But there are these physiologically based differences, well established, both in the peripheral nervous system and in the central nervous system, differences, sex differences. Dr Barry Cecil from the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto in Canada. And we'll stay with gender differences for the moment because one area where men and women most definitely differ is, of course, the pelvic region. Physical differences aside, men and women have different attitudes towards pelvic pain, and many men put this in the category of women's problems, and the reticence to discuss their own pelvic pain can and does put their lives at risk. Dr Amanda Williams is an academic and clinical psychologist, and she works mainly at University College London. It's a particularly difficult pain for people to talk about, to disclosed to those around them so particularly men we've found tend to make up a a cover story which then isn't very consistent because that's not where they feel pain and they don't behave in 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 a a way that uh, shows they have pain in whatever they said their knees It, it is a difficult problem to disclose 
People may laugh rather than sympathise, as they might over another pain. People worry about something being wrong with all visceral pains, sort of pains inside the body cavity. They can be quite diffuse. They may be quite sharp, but they may be quite diffuse and hard to locate. Many people aren't quite sure what's inside them, and of course they start to worry about things like cancer or tissues torn or damaged in some way, something horrible going on, and find it hard to get the information that will reassure them. Well, you've just confirmed what happened before we switched this recorder on. I had a little giggle about urogenital pain because I assume that's women's problems. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. Lots of the websites which say chronic pelvic pain only refer to women. Even scientific papers which are titled chronic pelvic pain only refer to women. But men can also get pelvic pain, sometimes for the same reasons to do with the muscular pelvic floor. And uh, then, of course, men and women do have different organs and they'll have different pathologies and problems that affect those organs. But it is seen as a woman's problem, and I think that, again, makes it hard for men to talk about it. So what problems do men get? They may be very specifically located in the genitals. They may be much more generally in the pelvic cavity. They may affect their bowels. It often happens with irritable bowel syndrome. Men may have problems in particular activities or positions so very keen cyclists are a bit overrepresented and certainly in the cycling literature there's a lot of discussion about how to make saddles more comfortable and padded clothing to help so it's clearly a problem that then just goes over the top in in some people so really a, a, a great variety of things which again makes it hard for men to find information easily that they feel refers to them. Why do you think men have a problem in discussing this? They find it harder anyway to talk about emotionally laden issues, things that worry them. They tend to look more for information and hard facts, perhaps, rather than reassurance as well. Women might go for for both. We know that in all sorts of health areas, people talk to friends, family members, many times before they reach a doctor unless it's something very urgent women do that far more than men and they'll get a range of opinions among which may be oh yes I know somebody who had that or I had that and yes I went to my doctor and I was given this so you start to get an, an idea of the possibilities if you talk about it to other people if you have something fairly rare and you don't talk about it you're never going to get any of that reassurance that it might be treatable, that a doctor will understand and take it seriously and so on. And of course some of the men we've seen have said that they felt the female doctor wasn't terribly sympathetic, although others have found them fine. One thing that people have told me is very effective is when, say, a high-profile sports star comes out. I mean, it, it happened recently that John Hartson had testicular cancer. And he was very, very open about just leaving it go and go and go, and he's survived it. But it could have been very different. Now, I actually know people who've been worrying about the same thing for years, and just one trip to the doctor, one ten-minute appointment, makes them sleep at night again. Exactly. Or else get directed to further investigation treatment. No, I think it's really admirable when people do do that, 
I don't know about that particular sportsman, but I know with Kylie Minogue, who talked about her breast cancer, it's led to a really significant increase in young women going to doctors either with worries about breast lumps or going to mastectomies or just taking it more seriously and not seeing it as something that only affects other people. So men must not be bashful. Um, a doctoral clinical psychology trainee of mine did two very nice bits of research. One was a literature review, but the literature was what was available on websites. So she used typical web surfing behaviour to look at what would be available to men who looked up urogenital pain, chronic pelvic pain on the web. And actually, of course, many sites were for women only. But when she found the sites, she looked firstly at whether they gave good information on the causes of pain, which can be helpful information for men and often reassuring. And the second was whether they gave any reference to psychology, psychological consequences, difficulties, distress, and so on. And she found it was really quite hard to obtain both those bits of information. Only three websites that she found had good psychological information. Quite a lot more had information about cause, but some of it was seriously out of date or misleading. The second bit of work she did was talking to men about what they thought was wrong with them before and after their first consultation in a pain clinic when they were coming for urogenital pain. And men were very keen to have a mechanical explanation that made sense to them, for which, of course, some needed some extra background information about how the mechanics works anyway. We were expecting more cancer fears, and we actually saw rather few. What was nice to see was that when men felt they'd been investigated for cancer, often at an early stage via the GP, and it was ruled out, then it stayed ruled out. They didn't come back to that worry later. And that's very good to see, because in... In some groups, you see people keeping coming back to the cancer worry. You know, six months after the scan was done, they think, well, perhaps it's developed recently. So that was good to see. But they were often very bewildered about the possible cause. And because pain is a problem within the nervous system about it functioning differently, it doesn't fit very well into a mechanical explanation. And you can develop analogies about computers or phones and so on, but none of them is really convincing. So it's quite hard to get a convincing explanation of pain in the urogenital area for men. And I know quite a lot of the doctors use a lot of diagrams to convey that. But again, with, with static diagrams, you can't show how messages, instead of going along the nerves occasionally, are firing off all the time. And of course, the brain then experiences pain. When I was worried about testicular cancer, not seriously worried about it, but with the pain in my testicles, something you don't really talk about, I didn't make an appointment with my female GP. I made an appointment with a male GP, and he felt my testicles. And then he said, I'm just going to stick my finger up your bottom. Had I known that was going to happen... You wouldn't have gone. I would not have gone. Yes. But I'm very grateful that I did go and everything's ruled out. Exactly. And as you say, then you can sleep at night. 
I know, but I wouldn't have gone if I'd found yes. a website that says your doctor is, is going to do something. That... Yes, that's a very good point because it does put people off. Although one can, with that information, say, this is perfectly normal. The doctor does this many times for investigations and is completely unbothered by it. So you just have to think of yourself as, for instance, another person in a long row of people having that investigation. But I agree, it does put people off. And... What came out of this research project was very often that men hadn't found anything that made a huge difference to their pain, but what they had done was resolved those worries enough. They felt that really horrible things had been ruled out. They knew they weren't going to steadily get worse, and that was enough for them to feel, OK, now I know where I stand. I can start to think about what I might need to do differently and so on. And there's some good evidence for physiotherapy help in some of these pains. So whereas before they wouldn't have considered physiotherapy, now it makes sense to them to try that and so on. So it, it was kind of opening some good doors and closing some bad ones that she heard over and over again from men who had had their consultation and felt better for it. Well, I can confirm that it's exactly as you say it is. <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> clinical psychologist, Dr. Amanda Williams. Now, at this point, I'll just say our usual words of caution, that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances, and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. As you heard earlier in the programme, 2012 is the International Association for the Study of Pain's Global Year Against Headache. Now, cluster headaches are excruciating. They're more painful than migraines or any other type of headache. In fact, they're so severe that they're often described as suicidal headaches. My name's Phil O'Brien and I suffer from cluster headaches. I'm Sue O'Brien. I'm married to Phil. And I also suffer when he suffers with cluster headaches. It's very true. I do. So I've had them for six years, and it took us two years to find out what it was, uh, which apparently is, is quite quick. Most people don't find out. They're not diagnosed as having clusters for four, five, six years. And I've just been told there's been people haven't known that they've had what they were suffering from for ten years plus. So we found out quite quick, really. Just tell me what a cluster headache is. Cluster headache's not like a migraine. You've got a nerve in your head, and basically it sends out two bigger signals. So most people's nerve is sending out little signals, making things work in your head and making things happen. And mine sends out, when I'm having a cluster headache, there's something in the brain stem, isn't there? Mm -hmm. it becomes active, and it, the mind nerve sends out massive signals. So I get pain in the ear, in the eye, in the teeth, and one side of the head. It's only ever one side. So mine's on the left side. And when I first got them, and we didn't know how to treat them, I could be in absolute agony. I liken it to someone parked a lorry on your head, the pain, and that could go on for four or five hours. Whereas also in a migraine, people like the quiet, and you get quite sort of agitated, and you pace up and down a lot, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So the symptoms are totally different to a migraine. Yeah. 
Now, we read articles where they say it's a migraine times 10 on the pain oh. factor, don't they? Yeah. But I don't know because I've never had a migraine. So. Somebody called it a suicide headache? Yes. Yeah, we were just talking to the specialist just now and he said he's known of people that have committed suicide Isn't whilst having a headache. It is a severe pain. You can't describe to someone what so it's, it's like. like. clamp, don't you? And then they just keep tightening yeah, and tightening. It, until it's as if someone's put your head in a vice and they're tightening the vice until you really can't take any more pain and then they give it another half a turn and then they won't release it. And that could you could have that for two hours. It's not a throbbing, it's constant pain. You just can't. You can't describe it. So in the beginning, we didn't know what it was, did we? No, I used to have up the wall, didn't I, and bash myself in the head. And yeah. So I can quite believe that people would give up on it, if you like, you know, give up You used on to hit yourself, didn't you, <laughs> things? Yeah. <laughs> Saved me doing it, I suppose. <laughs> Do you get quite agitated? But we've learnt now yeah. that the best thing for Phil is I leave him alone, I let him deal with it, I'm always in the background, and if he wants anything, he'll tell me. When I get a cluster now, we've got, a routine, we've got we? yeah, because it's been diagnosed and we've got various treatments, so we can take an injection that gets rid of it quite quickly. If it's not too bad a headache, then I can take some painkillers, and then we have to wait for it to go. But the side, mine's always on the left side of the head, and it, I'm burning up. So Sue knows that we've got two flannels, and she gets really cold water, and she keeps swapping the flannels for me. And then she knows well, that I like... actually come off really hot. So he's actually burning up. And yeah. we change the flannels like every 30 seconds. Yeah. Just yeah. constantly changing them. Yeah. And then Sue knows that I like to have a cup of tea. So in the early days, I used to get agitated. I used to say, get this, get that, leave me alone. And that's not my nature normally. But when I was in the middle of a cluster headache, I become a bit bossy. Irritable. And then sometimes I just needed her just to go away and leave me alone. But and now we don't really talk to each other much. I just get on with what I'm doing. We've got a little routine yeah, going. Yeah, we've got a lovely system going where we we deal with it together, don't we? And there was a stage where I used to wake up before Phil would have a cluster because I knew he was going to get one. So I'd wake him up and he'd, he'd wake up and say, yeah, I've got a headache coming. But I, I was aware that he'd be scratching his head in his sleep. So I'd wake him up and say to him, you're going to get a headache. And I did. And he did. Yeah. So how do you know that? We found out that in the beginning, Phil's headaches were just at night time. They were one hour after we went to bed. Regardless of what time we went to bed, we used yeah. to set an alarm for 45 minutes after we'd been to bed to try and wake up before. But my subconscious always used to wake me up when he started sort of fidgeting in bed. So I wouldn't particularly sleep quite deep. And sometimes it might go past the hour and I'd wake up and think, oh, he hasn't had a headache yet. And I'd go back to sleep and then he'd wake up with one. So There's a weird thing where, as Sue just said, if... If we went to bed at 11 o'clock at night, the headache was exactly 12 o'clock. If we went to bed at 10 to 1 in the morning, the headache was at 10 to 2. And it's almost like your brain has become this, you lay down and you go to sleep and you become into a relaxed state. And once your brain, say after an hour's sleep, your brain must switch off or whatever or do whatever it does. And my brain thought, ah, now's a good time. And it used to fire off these signals which would create this headache. We could deal with that when it was every night or every other night and it was just at night, we could deal with that because we used to get out of bed, get rid of the headache, go back to bed. That wasn't a problem. The last two years, they've started coming during the day. So now you're driving along, all of a sudden you're aware you're going to get a headache, you've got to pull up wherever you are, uh, you can't drive, you can't concentrate, you can't really talk to anyone. 
So now it's sort of affecting our lives quite badly. It is, because the other week he was on three or four a day. Yeah. So every time we get into doing something, we'd have to stop. So hence, we're now back at the London Migraine and Head Clinic, and they're now looking at other methods, because the, the, the treatment I was on, it basically isn't working anymore. It used to work, but my headaches have actually got worse and worse. So we're now in the throes of having other treatments, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So what treatment is that? Well, I used to be on large amounts of verapamil, which is like a, a blood pressure or a heart pill, I believe. And it also helps with cluster headaches. So we're now going on to a treatment which is quite specialised in that it's uh, small doses of lithium, which frightened the life out of me because it was used to treat depression and things like that. However, we've been told by a specialist that you know lithium does all sorts of things for different people. So... I had the impression it was going to play with my mind and things like that because it's linked to depression and it's, it's nothing like that at all. It basically helps how active the brain is at certain times. So for people with cluster headaches, a little bit of lithium can do some good. But then I have to go and have blood tests and things like that. So it has to, it's a sign of a treatment that has to be closely monitored. And then because I've had cluster headaches for so long, to give these other treatments an opportunity to work, we need to try and switch them off for four or five weeks because my body's got in the habit of having a headache. So we're trying to um, switch them off for four or five weeks. Switch off the medication. Switch off the pain. Switch off the cluster headache. So today... So today I've had an injection in the back of the head. A nerve blocker. Which is a nerve blocker. So I've had that today, and now we've got to wait and see what effect that has. So we're hoping that this nerve blocker injection... He's going to calm everything down rather than change them, I believe. So it's going to calm it all down. So I hopefully I'm going to get five or six or maybe even eight weeks off from having a cluster headache, which will hopefully give the new treatment an opportunity to get a hold and work. You were saying that it's become unmanageable for over the last couple of months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does that impact on you? Well, I've got a business, so I'm better off than some, I suppose, in terms of on my own time manager. So it's good in that respect. But the biggest difference for me is that when I used to just get them at night, nobody knew I had them. We didn't tell anyone because it wasn't important. Uh, it was just something between us at home knew that mm. I had these really like bad fuss, headaches. You don't do you? don't want people no, I don't want people and... feeling sorry for me. I don't want people asking me if I'm all right. I just want to... I get cluster headaches, but I just want to just get on with me life. I still just want to be me. I don't want everyone asking me how I'm getting on. But people on. who are aware of it are constantly going, are you all right? Because Do I don't think of it that I'm ill, because I'm not ill, I just suffer from cluster headaches. Now, if I, if somebody's ill, then you want maybe they want sympathy, and people keep going, how do you feel now? How do you? And people like that, and it's reassuring, and it's almost a pat on the back. But suffering from cluster headaches, I can only speak for myself, I don't want people's sympathy, I don't want to talk about it. Because it's not an illness that's going to kill me or anything. It's just an unpleasant thing that happens to me. So I like the idea of people not knowing, really. It's better because then they don't keep asking questions. You've got a quick treatment now as well. You have an injection. So when he gets a headache, he injects himself and the headache's gone normally within 10 minutes, which is really good. So we just carry medication around with us wherever we go, don't we? If ever we go out, you've got some and I've got some. And then if Phil does get a really bad headache, he'll just go off, inject himself and within 10 minutes it's gone. Yeah, so this new treatment is good. I'm saying new treatment. This is a treatment that was offered to me 
three or four years ago, and I didn't like the idea of injecting myself no. <laughs> because it's, this sounds weird. What happens is I was told that I could have these injections, and they gave me some. And I went home, pleased as punch. I've got these new injections. I can't wait for the next headache to see how good it is. And it, it becomes a little bit like that. You you know, you almost want to try it out. And uh, I got a headache, which made me flustered and agitated. So then I didn't want to inject myself. I took the lid off. And I'm, I can't, oh, I can't do that. So that went across the room because I'm agitated. <laughs> Big handfuls of painkillers. So I had these injections that I didn't want to take. They're brilliant. So... And then it, and now eventually I've seen someone here and they said, look, you've really got to try these things. You know, you've got to, you've got to cope with it. You've just got to have this injection. And, uh, and now I have the injections and they're brilliant, aren't mm-hmm. they? They're, uh, they're a lifesaver. Phil and Sue O'Brien, who I met at the National Migraine Centre in London. We'll come back to them to end this edition of Airing Pain in a moment, but let me just remind you that if you'd like to put a question to Pain Concerns panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter and, of course, pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern, one word, painconcern.org.uk and you can download all editions of Airing Pain from there too. We deal with it as a pair, as a couple, really. In the beginning, I felt really useless because we didn't know what it was. And Phil would pace up and down and be out in the garden at three, four in the morning. And he'd be really irritable, so I'd sort of stay away from him. I didn't know whether to help him or to stay back. But now we've just got an understanding. I do what I do and you do what you do. And if anything changes, then let me know if he wants anything else. But we have been told today that uh, after a period of time, they can just go away. And I await that day. (laughs) (laughs) Really?